Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Tuesday on the Three Martini Lunch. So glad you are with us. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives, and they're doozies today. So grab your stool and get comfortable. We're going to start off the work week in a uh, pretty intense way today. Jim, let's begin with our good martini, and it's good because it makes it even less likely that Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer will become uh, the vice presidential running mate for Joe Biden. Um, she's been in talks allegedly with the campaign, but now she's got a significant hypocrisy problem because Gretchen Whitmer told a lot of folks, particularly around the Detroit area, which got hit pretty hard with coronavirus. Hey, if you've got property up North, as they say in Michigan, which isn't the glorious upper peninsula where I'm from, but the upper part of the mitten, which is the lower peninsula, uh, she says, don't go up there. Uh, cause if you come down with coronavirus, if a lot of you are up there, you're going to overwhelm the healthcare systems up there. It's going to be too much. So, so stay here. And so most people complied and uh, Michigan is still effectively shut down, I think till June 12th. So even as Memorial Day weekend unfolded, uh, most folks were being discouraged from going up to their properties up north, except for Gretchen Whitmer, of course, according to the Detroit News, her husband named Mark Mallory uh, tried to jump the line to get his boat launched up in northern Michigan. This is from the uh, Detroit News. The owner of a northern Michigan dock company says Governor Gretchen Whitmer's husband wanted his boat placed in the water before the Memorial Day weekend as Whitmer urged residents not to rush to the region. Quote, this morning, I was out working when the office called me. There was a gentleman on hold who wanted his boat in the water before the weekend, Tad Dowker posted. Memorial Day weekend and the fact that we started working three weeks late means there's no chance this is going to happen. Well, our office personnel had explained this to the man and he replied, I'm the husband to the governor. Will this make a difference? In a statement, Whitmer spokeswoman uh, did not specifically confirm or deny the company's assertion, quote, our practice is not to discuss the governor's or her family's personal calendar or schedules, and we're not going to make it a practice of addressing every rumor that is spread online. That's a really long way if that's a no, Jim. So uh, uh, it's always fun when you pull the uh, do you know who I am card and it's not looking good for Gretchen Whitmer right now, which is good news for us. No, it's not. It, it's, it, and, you know, I, I had come out rather skeptical of the idea that Whitmer was going to be the uh, uh, best choice for Biden uh, politically or even before uh, the coronavirus lockdowns went on. She clearly has turned into something of a lightning rod for this. We saw all those protests. Even by that standard, you might say, okay, well, still, we really want to win, you know, Michigan. This will do it. Any whiff of hypocrisy, any sense that the, you know, her family believed that they were exempt from her own uh, rules and regulations that her administration was putting out was the sort of thing that could, uh, the Trump campaign certainly is not going to hesitate to make a huge stink out of this. Now, I'm just going to make one minor defense of Mark Mallory. Greg, and I'm going to speak only on my behalf, not on yours, not on anybody in National Reviews. But let's just observe how many husbands don't entirely listen to the instructions their wife gives them. <laughs> now, admittedly, most of our wives are not the governor and most of our wives are not, you know, putting together sweeping rules for the entire thing and telling people they can't shop for seeds and, you know, Walmart's got to shut down this aisle because this stuff will spread the coronavirus and all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, she already kind of had this image of... Um, being the most extravagant, uh, being the most sweeping and complicated restrictions on what people could do during the pandemic. This kind of story is going to hurt her. Now, I think what's interesting about it, the two folks who are not being mentioned as potential running mates for Joe Biden, with good reason, uh, 
Governor Pritzker in Illinois apparently has been to, his family has been to his properties in, the Pritzkers are like super duper wealthy. Oh yeah. And so they have properties all across the country. So his family went to one in Florida where apparently they're raising animals and they had to be there. And I guess he has stables up in Wisconsin and he went up to check on them and he also had work done there. And his argument is, well, I hired union workers. So I I guess union workers can't get the coronavirus. I I don't know what the... (laughs) It was an essential business was the, was the insistence that it's reprehensible that anybody would dare ask about what his family was doing during the uh, uh, lockdown. Now, here's the thing. If, if the governors don't believe, you know, if the governor's families don't act like lockdown restrictions apply to themselves, lots of people are going to say, hey, wait a minute, why does this apply to me? There's a similar story going on with one of Boris Johnson's advisors over in the UK, but probably the, the one that was closest to you and I, Greg. Governor Ralph Northam yes. uh, was down by Virginia Beach this weekend and taking lots of selfies with people. Now, here's the great irony. He wasn't wearing a mask, Greg. And this, we know he loves that. Masks, hoods, black face. This guy's constantly putting stuff all over his face. But no, not for this one. I think what really, like, this, this is bad. Uh, you're seeing even some Democrats and other folks who've been generally trying to be supportive of Northam during all this. We're, we're really giving them grief about it. But I think what really just the cherry on top is that the statement issued by Governor Northam's office insisted that he was social distancing. No, he wasn't. You know, there are pictures of his arm around people, right? I mean, like, that's a lot of personal contact when there's not an epidemic going on. So, um, uh, just this is kind of this pattern of lawmakers who say, you must do this. The rumor is, is that Northam's going to insist upon everybody in Virginia wear masks in public in all circumstances. I guess we'll hear more from him this week. I think that announcement got more complicated based on what the governor did this weekend. Um, but there's this continuing series of a pattern of, you know, uh, Democratic lawmakers who have enacted sweeping restrictions on people who then have either themselves or their families not practicing what they preach and not practicing what they're requiring of others. Yeah. Uh, if he requires masks just to go for walks and stuff, there's going to be a huge blowback, particularly after what he did. So I'll, I'll be curious to see if he tailors what his original message was. But Jim, before we leave Michigan and move on to our bad martini, uh, you know, Trump has basically uh, mixed it up with three different statewide elected officials in Michigan. Of course, there's Whitmer. Uh, last week, we talked about Dana Nessel, the uh, attorney general who was furious that he didn't wear the mask at the Ford visit in Ypsilanti. And then, of course, there's uh, Jocelyn Benson, the secretary of state who has sent out absentee ballot applications to every voter in the state. Trump tweeted about her sending ballots to every person in the state, which was not accurate. But all these uh, applications went out. And here's where uh, the story takes an interesting turn on a personal level. So right after we finish recording the podcast on Friday, I get a call from my mom. And she says, absentee ballot application came today. I'm like, oh, okay. She says, guess who else got one? And I'm thinking, well... And as many of our listeners know, my wonderful oh, no. dad passed my wonderful dad passed away last summer. So I'm thinking, well, that was less than a year ago, so I won't be shocked. And so I say, oh, I bet dad got one. And she says, yep. And so I'm thinking, well, in a small county, it really shouldn't be that hard to go through the obituaries and take people off the rolls, send that to the state. So while I'm fuming with this internal monologue, she says, guess who else got one? And I'm thinking, you have got to be kidding me. Me? She's like, yep. Jim, the last time I voted in Michigan was 1998. In 1998, (laughs) The Last Dance wasn't a documentary. It was actually (laughs) happening. Seinfeld's uh, series finale was going on. Saving Private Ryan was new in the theaters. Uh, Bill Clinton was just uh, a few months into uh, the Monica Lewinsky scandal, hadn't quite been impeached yet. 
Uh, John Engler was on the ballot in Michigan that year, running against the attorney for Jack Kevorkian. That's 22 years ago. Not only that, but my mother uh, was voting in a local election. I think probably the last time my dad was on the ballot, uh, over a decade ago now. And so she voted. And uh, the person at the poll says, oh, will Greg be voting today too? Because they're just looking at the thing alphabetically. And she said, well, Greg hasn't lived here in a very long time. You need to take him off the rolls. And so she thought they had done that. The only thing on this application that you have to check a box for is I certify that I'm a voter in Michigan. And let me tell you, if that is happening to someone who's been gone for over two decades, guess how many people would probably be willing to check the box if they think it might help their preferred candidate. This is a problem. Yeah, that that is a, a, a vivid story there, Greg. My first thought is I'm marveling at the fact that not only is the last ballot you ever cast uh, in the state of Michigan itself old enough to vote. <laughs> it's old enough to drink. Yes. And I suspect, Greg, that ballot itself has probably been mailed its own ballot for uh, the upcoming elections. <laughs> The other thing is, you know, when you missed, when you started that story, I'm like, ah, I bet his dad got one. You're right. It wasn't that long ago. Um, most of the Garrities go up into the uh, upstate New York area. But I, my understanding is that there were some branch of the family tree. My, you know, great grandfather's uncles and all that stuff who did go out to Chicago. And um, my understanding is, is that in, in some ways with the voter rolls, Greg, I feel like they're not really gone. Yeah, and they become Democrats. Cleaning up the rolls is a big deal. And you're not going to get it done now before November. So the opportunities for mischief in Michigan, and I'm guessing elsewhere, are uh, quite significant. All right, let's move on to our bad martini now, Jim. And uh, let's talk about President Trump. He spent his Memorial Day at uh, Arlington Cemetery with the wreath. Uh, he also gave a speech at Fort McHenry. Uh, he was criticized for golfing for the first time uh, this weekend, a couple different times, well, uh, ever since this uh, pandemic started. But he's also spent some time on the Twitter and uh, that's always a little bit of a roller coaster ride. And his big issue right now that he wants to call attention to, trying to link Joe Scarborough to the death of a former intern. This is uh, from Sunday. A lot of interest in this story about psycho Joe Scarborough. So a young marathon runner just happened to faint in his office, hit her head on his desk and die. I would think there's a lot more to this story than that. An affair? What about the so-called investigator? Read the story. Oh, but he's still at it again today. The opening of a cold case against psycho Joe Scarborough was not a Donald Trump original thought. This has been going on for years, long before I joined the chorus. In 2016, when Joe and his wacky future ex-wife Mika would endlessly interview me, I would always be thinking about whether or not Joe could have done such a horrible thing. Maybe or maybe not. But I find Joe to be a total nut job, and I knew him well, far better than most. So many unanswered and obvious questions, but I won't bring them up now. Law enforcement eventually will? Question mark. So, uh, Jim, you've already got the, the husband of this woman who died, I guess, back in 2001, literally asking Twitter to remove it, uh, Trump's tweets on this subject. Uh, he certainly doesn't want any part of this. Uh, I don't know if Scarborough has said anything about this. You've got Republicans, at least like Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, who's not a Trump fan anyway, saying that this is only going to be very bad for the Republican Party if Trump keeps doing stuff like this. But what do you take on all this? Well, the first thought, this turned into an issue primarily because of Marcos Molitsas of the left-wing site Daily Coast. Let, you know, Trump has this habit of he does something controversial. People react and negatively to it. And out of this like obstinate in, you know, insistence, he will then do it again. He'll double down. You know, oh, he thought that was bad. Take this, you know. And I, I'm going to try to just, you know, 
try to put this in the terms that Trump fans would, would grasp. What does this get Donald Trump? What does this benefit him? Okay, he's, he's mad at Joe Scarborough. He's mad at Mika. Fine. All right, whatever. You know, they're, 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 there's plenty of stuff to, to, to go after them for. There's plenty of criticism. You and I criticize Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski quite a bit on this podcast. No one is saying they're above criticism. What they're saying is that this case, going from way back when, uh, involving a 28-year-old woman who had a heart ailment, fainted, hit her head on the desk. This is what the medical examiner did. This is not, you know, there's been never been any concrete evidence or anything pointing to a foul play or anything like that. Even if you want to criticize Joe Scarborough, this is not the strongest argument. This is not, you know, and the more people push back against this, the more Trump digs into this. And I guess what I'm wondering, Grace, does Trump think he was elected to get to the bottom of this case? Like, does he think that his supporters are like, ah, now we've got Scarborough. Oh, this will, you know, the only thing that this stands out, like, like there's an argument amongst Trump's critics that I, I think he plays into this argument all too frequently and all too joyfully is that the cruelty is the point. Um, the, the objective here is to be shocking. The objective here is to be as nasty as possible. And he knows that this is, you know, this, the side effect will be this young woman's family, you know, that, that this is, but he doesn't care. He just wants to go charged with this. And the more people push, and he did it again this morning. And Trump will continue you know, beating this drum and no one can seem to get through to him. Whatever point you're trying to make with this, Mr. President, you want to you make the argument that Joe Scarborough is a lousy TV anchor? Make that argument. Right? You want to make the argument that MSNBC is biased against you? Make that argument. There's a lot of evidence for that. But don't go after this poor woman. Don't make these kind of crazy allegations. And this is, you know, no one can seem to get through with him. And this is probably going to undermine, I'm hearing from, you know, regular Trump fans who are like just sighing over this, who, who basically who want to defend the president, who want to support the president. But he makes it so much harder with this zero impulse control. And it's sometimes just flat out zero judgment. That of all the arguments you can make against Joe Scarborough to drag into, you know, this, uh, uh, this poor young woman and her family and all this stuff back into this day after day, um, it, it, is, it is basically, it is the most self, one of the most self-destructive things the president has done, even by the standards of his presidency. I think it's a unique time in American history, and I know some Trump supporters will strongly disagree with this, but have you ever seen a time where a lot of folks look at the confirmed or likely nominee for both major parties and, and they just conclude, you know, if they just mothballed this person and put them away for months, they'd probably have a better chance to win than if they just kept talking. Yeah, which is, you know, a, a ominous sign if one guy is in a basement in Delaware, <laughs> the other guy's president of the United States and speaking out uh, on a, you know, nearly daily basis. Um, I think it was, Kevin, I'm going to paraphrase Kevin Williamson and people can go look up the precise word. He said that, you know, for the choice for Republicans is, do you want the verbally incoherent and obnoxious and tone deaf septuagenarian who's going to be with you 80% of the time or the one who's going to be against you 80% of the time? And so when all these, you know, uh, you know, left-wing commentators are like, how can Republicans support Donald Trump? Well, I mean, you know, you take a look at Joe Biden. That's where we are. Joe Biden's done his best from his basement to uh, sow confusion, uh, babbling all over the place, uh, the whole you ain't black comment. And, mm -hmm. and then he told CNBC that he was going to defeat Joe Biden. So, and as- <laughs> Well, he, he will. <laughs> I mean, he, probably accurate. So, you know, that, that one will get past the fact checkers. If anyone's going to do it, it probably will be him. Let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And well, the Democrats are dreading something happening before November. What could it be? Could it be a, a second wave of the coronavirus? Could it be 
some other dire international event, like the Chinese cracking down on citizens of Hong Kong or something? Nope. Nope. Once again, Jim, the Democrats are reading the stage directions out loud. It looks like uh, they're very, very worried that the economy might improve between now and then. This is from Politico. In early April, Jason Furman, a top economist in the Obama administration and now a professor at Harvard, was speaking via Zoom, because aren't we all, to a large bipartisan group of top officials from both parties. The economy had just been shut down, unemployment was spiking, and some policymakers were predicting an era worse than the Great Depression. The economic carnage seemed likely to doom President Donald Trump's chances at re-election. Furman, tapped to give the opening presentation, looked into his screen of poorly lit boxes of frightened wonks and made a startling claim. Quote, we're about to see the best economic data we've seen in the history of this country, he said. The former cabinet secretaries and Federal Reserve chairs in the Zoom boxes were confused, though some of the Republicans may have been newly relieved and some of the Democrats suddenly concerned. Quote, everyone looked puzzled and thought I had misspoken, Furman said. Instead of forecasting a prolonged depression-level economic catastrophe, Furman laid out a detailed case for why the months preceding the November election could offer Trump the chance to brag truthfully about the most explosive monthly employment numbers and GDP growth ever. Since the call, Furman has been making the same case to anyone who will listen, especially the close-knit network of Democratic wonks who have traversed the Clinton and Obama administrations together, including top members of the Biden campaign. Here's the clincher. Furman's counterintuitive pitch has caused some Democrats, especially Obama alumni around Washington to panic. This is my big worry, said a former Obama White House official who is still close to the former president. Asked about the level of concern among top party officials, he said it's high, 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 high. Jim, I know you want to win, but when, hey, we could have really good economic news, a lot more people could get their jobs back, and that causes you great distress, we've got a problem. Listeners, I'm going to take a moment of silence for a second. Hang on. Okay, could you hear the high-fiving over at Trump headquarters when I pause there? Because that's probably the way they react. I suspect this quote will end up in some, uh, if not Trump advertisements, then some version of this will be at the core of the Trump message, which is that Democrats are rooting against the economy. Now, lots of Democrats say, oh, good heavens, no. We would never do something like that. We want to see this country prosper as much as possible. We just don't think it can happen with Trump in charge, blah, blah, blah. Well, when you're openly saying... We are, this is my big, big worry. It's high, 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 high. Greg, that's five highs. That's, that's pretty high. Um, look, first of all, I think the Furman theory makes a lot of sense. We can argue about how much it's going to be. But again, as many people have pointed out, it's not that there was a giant um, economic problem in the United States in terms of uh, banks making bad loans or overextended or a uh, real estate bubble popping or a stock market bubble popping or something like that. The problem was the coronavirus. The problem was that in order to protect ourselves, we were going to have to shut down large chunks of the economy. People were going to stop doing things like getting on airplanes and going to Disney World and going cruises, hotels, restaurants, bars, you know, huge sectors of the economy were all of a sudden shut down like that. Now, we are, you know, it's past Memorial Day. We are now gradually, you know, restaurants are figuring out how to do outdoor seating. Um, you're starting to see a couple of people more on, on get onto flights. Uh, the Wall Street Journal has a very interesting article. Truckloads of goods are starting to get a little bit. You're starting to see, you know, what, what in the early Obama administration, they would have called green shoots. Um, but you're starting to see the, fir- the, the, we've hit bottom. And we are starting to see that, that climb. Now, once people feel comfortable interacting in a way, whether it's through masks or whether it's through, uh, you know, trying to operate normally, but being six feet apart or something like that. First of all, there's all this pent up demand as nobody bought anything in, you know, throughout the late, late, late March, April and well into May. 
And then Americans are going to want to go out and do something once they're finally, now that they're finally allowed to leave the house in a lot of parts of the country. So you're going to see things starting to open up uh, and you're going to start to see some economic growth. And because there was such a huge, quick, fast fall, you're going to have a rebound. And it's quite possible that the, you know, the month-to-month numbers and the quarter-to-quarter numbers might be some of the best we've ever seen. Um, now, is this going to mean we're going to be back to regular economic conditions by November? Probably not. It's probably going to be a, a longer, tougher climb. But Trump's going to be able to say, hey, look, unemployment came down, you know, one and a half percent last month. I'm picking these numbers out of my head. Uh, we created, you know, we restored this many jobs last month. We, uh, GDP went up this much quarter. And they're going to be really good numbers. And that's going to be, you know, an argument that he's going to make. Here's the thing. If you're the Biden campaign and you aren't prepared for an economic recovery, you deserve to lose. Because this came on very quickly. The whole field, as of February, the Biden campaign, I assume, was planning on running against Trump with a good economy. And this is, you know, so that good economy has come to an end. We are now in a terrible economy, but we're hoping it's very short-lived. By the end of summer, by fall, all of a sudden things could start looking significantly better. And if you're Joe Biden and you're the Democrats and you can't cope with that, you are in deep doo-doo because you had all these other arguments that you thought were going to work before the economic crash happened. Um, but beyond that, you know, get your people off the phone from Politico and get them to stop saying we're very worried about an economic recovery because that is exactly the messaging that the Trump campaign wants. And my sneaking suspicion is they're going to use it very effectively because there are too many Democrats who will let the mask slip and who will say they would much rather have you in a rough shape if it makes it more likely their guy is going to uh, win. My attitude, you, you know, your candidate should be able to win in good economy, bad economy, you know. If, if you need an economic crash to win, you're probably not running that good a campaign. Jim, this may be a, a bridge too far, and certainly it's a case-by-case thing if, if there's any validity to this at all. But, you know, we've gone kind of from this, we've got to bend the curve approach from some governors to we have to stay in some sort of uh, restrictive status until we get a vaccine. You get news like that combined with this story mm-hmm. out of Politico, you're going to have some people thinking, well, these governors, all they're doing is trying to play out the clock here so the economy still stinks by the time November rolls around. Right. I mean, yeah, it, you know, I do have my doubts about um, how much these, these governors want to see, particularly if you live in a swing state. Do you want your economy to be rip roaring with exceptionally low unemployment come election day 2020? I don't know how Gretchen Whitmer falls about, feels about that. I don't know how Tom Wolf falls about, feels about that in Pennsylvania. I don't know about, uh, uh, well, Illinois is not that much of a swing state and neither is, is Virginia uh, with Northam, but there's a, a general sense that like, look, that everybody kind of seems to have the sense that if the economy does well, Trump's more likely to get reelected. And if the economy does poorly, uh, that Trump is more likely to be defeated. And we know, I mean, we, we saw the attorney general just openly campaigning, telling people the way to fix the, uh, the, the, the way to alleviate the lockdown is to vote for Biden. I mean, you know, you're not supposed to have your partisan desires and your uh, allegedly nonpartisan apolitical ba- based on science recommendations um, mixing like that. And, you know, you get your, your once you get your, your peanut butter into your chocolate and your chocolate into your peanut butter, they're very hard to separate. And people start saying, OK, this is all them being partisan. They're going to tune out these recommendations. Yeah. When you're cheering the misery of the American people, not only uh, might it cost you the election, it probably should. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, I don't think that's a bridge too far. I haven't heard anything directly from Biden on that, but uh, sounds like a lot of his team members uh, are a little concerned about this. So, uh, Jim, quite a way to start this uh, truncated week here. We're already to Tuesday. So, you know, one day closer to Friday than usual at the start of the week. 
You know, Greg, today is a Tuesday that feels like a Monday, but because it's quarantine, we know it's actually Wednesday. It is tomorrow. Jim, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review with five stars. Also get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And please join us again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.